This is a, a prayer from Stages on the Way, which is from the Wild Goose Worship Group. Let us pray. Glorious God, your thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are your ways our ways. You look at the ugliest soul and still see, still unstirred, the wings of an angel. We scan the finest of our neighbours, anxious to find the floor. You view time in the context of eternity, and so find a place for waiting, for yearning, even for suffering, even for dying. We demand instant results and look for tomorrow before savouring today. You know that only one who suffers can ultimately save. That is why you walk the way of the cross. We fear that vulnerability which defies our power. That is why we allow for crucifixion. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are your ways our ways. And yet we know that your way is the ladder to heaven. While left to our own devices, our ways slope downhill to hell. But we are here, not to have our worst confirmed, but to have our best liberated. So we pray, forgive in us what has gone wrong. Repair in us what is wasted. Reveal in us what is good. And nourish us with better food than we could ever purchase. Your word, your love, your inspiration, your daily bread for our life's journey in the company of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
God of comfort shows his love to us and holds us tightly through the tears. Jesus, Lord of peace, is with us now. Thank you, Chloe, for that choice. I thought I would begin tonight by reminding us of the lectionary gospel reading for this last Sunday. So you've probably just heard this reading two or three days ago, because it seems to me to link in well with the chapter in Stephen Cottrell's book that we're looking at tonight. And so I'm going to read to you from Mark's Gospel in chapter eight. He, that's Jesus, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. 
So maybe you heard that on Sunday, maybe you even heard a sermon on that. I just want us to notice uh, a few things about that particular reading. I think we should notice, first of all, Peter's role in that story, because he's only just got it right. It's Caesarea Philippi, and uh, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who says, you're the Son of God, you're the Messiah, you're the one that we've expected. And so at that point, Peter gets it very, very right, a big tick in the box, I guess. But now he's suddenly got it wrong, and now he's sternly rebuked. And I guess... So it is with all of us, actually. We get some aspects of our faith bang on and right. While other bits, I suspect, we can miss the mark all the way through our lives. We get it right and we get it wrong. But I think we should notice Peter in a different way as well. I, I, I notice when I read that passage that Peter takes Jesus to one side to tell him off. Um, and that seemingly is sort of surprisingly sensitive of Peter, it seems to me. We usually think of Peter as somebody just generally blustering along, um, speaking before he engages his brain and getting it horribly wrong. But he does take Jesus to one side to speak to him. And I wonder whether, having just shown himself as more insightful than the other disciples, maybe he thinks that actually I know Jesus best here. Maybe I can just drag him to one side and have a quiet word with him and set him right. Maybe he feels he can now tell him off. I don't know. And I wonder what Peter says to Jesus when he rebukes him. Does he say something like, now don't rock the boat, Jesus. We're doing well. We're popular. This talk of suffering and death will turn people away. Now just stop it. Or I wonder whether he says something like, Jesus, you've got this wrong. This is not what should happen to the Messiah to the king. There is a different way you're approaching this all wrong. I wonder what he says. And then in the reading, I notice Jesus' forcefulness. Get behind me, Satan. Get away from me, Satan, depending on your translation. That is really harsh, isn't it? How easy would it have been for Peter to hear those words, get behind me, Satan? Is it a reasonable response or is it a bit over the top? It feels to me almost a bit over the top, if I may dear say so, of Jesus. And so I wonder what makes Jesus so forceful at this point. It seems to me it's a bit like returning to the 40 days in the wilderness and the temptations. Satan saying to Jesus, testing Jesus, well, Jesus, what does it mean to be Messiah? What's it going to mean for you to fulfill your ministry, Jesus? It has overturned to that for me. And I wonder whether the thought of suffering in death is really, really traumatic for Jesus at this point. And sometimes when you articulate something, you say it out loud, it suddenly becomes more real, doesn't it? And so I just wonder whether this outburst by Jesus is actually just a human face of him, recognising the trauma and the pain and the difficulty of what is to come. And so in that reading that we had last Sunday, there is 
a lack of understanding and comprehension by Peter. And there is very much the human face and side of Jesus. And it seems to me those are the two things that Stephen Cottrell picks up in the fourth chapter of his book, even though it's the third evening that we're having, the things he carried, or things he carried, his followers' disappointments. I think one of the things I want to say about that chapter and that sense of the followers' disappointments is how easy we forget how difficult it was for the first disciples and the early church to grasp the idea of a suffering God and a suffering Messiah. For example, first of all, there is the spectacle of crucifixion itself. There is a sheer brutality of it, the humiliation of it, the degradation of it, and some of that was picked out in the first chapters of Stephen Cottrell's book. If you're an imperial power, if you're the empire, and you want to show strength and domination, crucifixion is not a bad one way to go. It is just horrible. And then there is a sheer ordinariness of it. When, when we think about the cross, we think of a lone cross on the hillside at Easter, or maybe three crosses, Jesus central and one either side of him. But the reality is that the, the, the Romans crucified hundreds and thousands of people over the year. Now, rightly for us, the cross is unique. But at the time, Jesus would have appeared as just another criminal, just another failed revolutionary. So there's a brutality and the ordinariness of it. And then there are all the biblical texts. There is one, I think, in Deuteronomy, I should have looked it up, I forgot, that says something like, accursed is he who dies on the tree. So in other words, for a good first century Jew, Something like crucifixion is a sign, or not of just of agony, but of shame, of being cursed by God, not a blessing. And we read in the New Testament, well, Jesus dies according to the scriptures. He must die and rise again in accordance to the scriptures. But which scriptures? It's easy for us to look back and say, well, Isaiah 53, for example, the suffering servant. But there are many other strands of the Old Testament that would point to a Messiah who is very, very different about power. Sometimes in the Old Testament, there's a God who is quite jealous and vengeful, isn't there? And so it's easy for us in hindsight to see what was not obvious at the time. And just remember that the early church struggled to come to terms with the cross. There is no one theory of atonement in the New Testament. Rather, there is a collection of imagery as to how the cross works. From, for example, the language of the Old Testament Redeemer, language from the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, language from the Old Testament legal system. They were still trying to work out how it worked and what it meant in the life of the early church and in the time of the New Testament. What does this mean, this cross? How does it change things? How does God's Messiah die and rise? And how does that all work for us? So you've got the spectacle itself. 
you've got the, the Old Testament scriptures and what do they say about this? And then you've got all the human invo emotions involved in Holy Week as well. The fear, the shock, the trauma. The disciples just, I think, trying to process that last week in Jerusalem, particularly, for example, the Last Supper, and then Jesus' criticism in the Garden of Gethsemane. Could you not stay awake one hour with me? And then the arrest. They are struggling to deal with all of that, just as any of us would deal, struggle to deal with any traumatic time in our lives. We all know it's like to have a really bad week and uh, what that does to us. And so Jesus, on the way to the cross, carries all that disappointment. This is not what the disciples expect from or understand by kingship, or messiahship, or the fulfilment of God's purposes, or God's promises. And we shouldn't criticise them too harshly for reacting and being the people they were at that time. He carried his followers' disappointments and misunderstandings. In the chapter, Stephen Cottrell also spells out what he sees as the humanity of Jesus in this chapter on the, the disciples' disappointments. So let me quote a few lines of that chapter to you. He talks about Jesus not fully knowing the impact of what he's doing himself. Quote, he was still struggling to know why, but he also carried the knowledge that he was somehow to be the fulfilment of all that God had longed to do through Israel. Cottrell doesn't think that Jesus is entirely certain of how this works. Cottrell speaks of Jesus' fear of failure. I'll quote again. He carried the terrible possibility that it was all in vain, that he could walk at their side forever and never be recognised, never be known unquote, i.e. that they will never understand. They will just return to how it was before all this following of Jesus started. And they'll look back in later years of their lives and maybe smile about the naivety of their youth in following Jesus. He fears failure, says Cottrell. And then Cottrell says that he has self-doubt. And I quote again, perhaps he had got it wrong. Perhaps he was carrying not just their vanity, but his own. So Stephen Cottrell in this chapter speaks about the humanity of Jesus, not being fully knowing what's going on, a fear of failure and self-doubt. And I just wonder, is that how we see Jesus in this last period of his life as he walks away to the cross? Made me think about it. Before we go into groups, I've got one other thing that I think I want to say, and that's just to remind us that we're all here, that the disappointments of this chapter, the disappointments in the disciples, are not the final word. They did come to a fuller and a deeper understanding. They did have their notions of kingdom and power and grace and forgiveness and the activity of God transformed. 
by Good Friday, by Easter, and by Pentecost. They didn't return to the past to look back nostalgically at the folly of their youth. They went forward. Jesus' fear of failure and self-doubting, if Stephen Cottrell is right, all of that was ultimately unfounded. We are here. We are here because of what happened. Good Friday and Easter Sunday and Pentecost all belong together alongside Good Friday. And so as I reflect on those things, the questions that I have for us are these ones. Have there been times when you have felt let down or misunderstood, or have thought that your work might be for nothing? And what was it like? How far do you agree with Stephen Cottrell's picture of Jesus as fearing failure and experiencing self-doubt? And how does a human Jesus help you? When have you experienced doubt and fear to discover afterwards that the situation has turned out all right? And what experiences can you remember when going through pain or disappointment has ended up opening up new opportunities or has led to greater understanding? Because for me, those are the sort of questions that flow from uh, the chapter and my reflection on it, and also the passage from last Sunday. So I hope that is, uh, is helpful. Um, I think it's time that we went into some groups to, to talk together rather than just listen to me wittering on. And uh, Chloe does the magic stuff with the groups. And so you might even find yourself in a group of people that you've met already in a previous week and you might even have a, a, a coordinator and a facilitator in your group if it works well. Chloe? <laughs> yeah I've, I've attempted to put you all into groups this is my third attempt um, so hopefully it'll go okay um, and the, at the moment um, it's half an hour in groups um, and um, then I'll bring you back um, but if you want to escape from your facilitator then just send me a message and I'll, I'll rescue you and get you out earlier. Anyway, I'm going to put, try putting you all into groups now so we can see how it goes.